tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Tev Finger, the founder and CEO of Luxury Brand Partners. Welcome, Tev. Thank you. Great to be here. So, Tev, you know, you're kind of this mastermind behind the scenes that a lot of people outside of our industry don't know about. And I think that's really interesting considering how many brands you've incubated and, and sold, of course. But would you tell our guests and viewers, rather, um, a little bit about how you kind of got started in the beauty business? Yeah, I, I started in the beauty business. Um, I, I was almost abducted, is the way I think about it. So I had a family member, um, a godfather, actually, that owned a hair salon in Manhattan. And that salon was called Bumble and Bumble. And uh, I was kind of getting to that point in high school where you you start deciding, you know, are you going to do the SATs and what college are you going to go to? And he said to me, listen, you're making a huge mistake. Take a year off. You can always go to college, but come and work in the city at my salon. You'll absolutely love it. And at that point, I was like, uh, you know what? Maybe that's a good idea. Take a break, you know. But I said, well, are you going to pay me? He was like, yeah, absolutely. I was like, OK, I'm in. So I, I always had this desire to kind of jump into work. So, and it made sense to me, take a break one year, kind of figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do business. I just didn't know what. So I figured maybe that'd be a smart move. And then I could kind of pick what college courses to take based off of, you know, maybe a direction I wanted to go. And the reality is the minute I started uh, working at, at, uh, at Bumble um, from a young age, right? So I started at like 16 um, part-time and then 17, kind of getting more full-time and then graduated in the late seven, uh, you know, almost 18 years old and went full-time at that point and, and never really looked back. So the idea at the end of that first year, um, you know, I, the, the whole plan was I was going to come back and then go to college. That just disappeared because the, the um, salon owner, his name was Michael Gordon, his famous, famous hairdresser, and the salon was called Bumble and Bubble, um, said, hey, I want to create a product line. And he was, you know, I give, he was a visionary and uh, it, it kind of went from there. So that kind of is how I got sucked into the, into, the, into the salon world and then into the product world and then into more than just hair product and kind of into the bigger context of the product world. So that was kind of how it started. So Tab, when you were working at Bumble in the salon, you were doing everything. So you're like back of house, you're writing the books. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was uh, it was actually a fantastic. Since I wasn't classically trained in anything, so you know it was it was kind of he would just and he was a hairdresser and he also you know he never went to school, so he went to hairdresser school. So it was kind of like just do whatever you can do to help the cause. And you know, so I remember very early on there was a. This is the one story that I kind of always remember. And I feel like this is how I made my, uh, when you're in the mob, you know what they call you're like a made man in the mob. Like you have to, this is how I like got made. I, there, was a ch- <laughs> there was a chest, uh, a big chest. And inside of it, I was actually cleaning the office. I mean, I, would, I did everything. I mean, cleaning, whatever it took. And there was a chest. And in that chest was a bunch of bricks of paper checks and maybe like six huge bricks about, you know, like two feet big. And I went in there and I, kind of was like, hey, I don't want to throw these away, but like, these are bounced checks. Uh, and, and he was like, yeah. He goes, I put them in there. I go, did you redeposit any of them? Because they look like they never, you know, when you redeposit, you get a, in the old days, you get like a, a uh, they put like a hole in it. And I was like, uh, there's no hole. And he was like, no, I don't think I redeposited it. So I went through the painstaking mission of actually calling every single person and saying, you know, you bounced a check. And people were actually amazing. This is way back when like check, uh, checks were 80% of the business in the salon and credit cards were next to nothing. 
So what year was this, Tab? Will you this tell is us what ni- year this was? Nineteen ninety. So. So in 1990, believe it or not, in a hair salon, most people wrote checks and there was checks and cash. That was kind of the business. And I took those checks and I started calling the clients and people were, this is kind of funny, but people would put their phone number and address on a check. I mean, something I don't think anyone really would do anymore because of privacy. But back then, so like I would call them up and be like, hi, Mrs. Whoever, or Mr. Whoever, you know, you bounced a check two years ago or four years ago. Can I... Uh, can I redeposit it? Or uh, since it's an older check, if it's over six months, can you just write me a new one? And can you also give me $25 of uh, a bounce check fee? And people were mortified. They were like, oh, I'm so embarrassed. Absolutely. I just figured you redeposited it. And I was like, well, we didn't redeposit it because we're not exactly, uh, you know, we're good at the haircutting. We're not great on the business side. So so people were tremendous, uh, were like super, super sweet and kind. And over the course of about, it was about three to six months I just kept a pot every day. It was like a windfall of cash. And this business, um, you know, it was a hair salon, but we had recouped almost $250,000. From bounce checks. From bounce checks, which to a business of that size in 1990s feels like millions of dollars today. So that money actually became kind of important because we started using that to like, you know, maybe pay for some product line uh, first purchases and stuff like that. So that's how I kind of made my bones in that, the, at that point, the the founder said, "Oh, well, this this guy's actually kind of good. Like he's 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 not normal, but he's good. <laughs> so I would never have thought to find these checks in a cubby, and he would he would have told me to throw them away. So that process just got more and more. So he would put me into the uh, the color, every color department for hair color. Believe it or not, people think of color when you go to a stylist or your colorist, and you think, oh yeah, there's just three little boxes. But remember, there's hundreds and hundreds of colors." that they store somewhere and they use one tube pretty much for, for each color. So that's a lot. So I love computers. So I, it was a simplistic thing. I took all of the colors. They were like one RN, two RN, three RN, four RN, took all the colors, put it on an Excel sheet. This is not like coding. This is like basic, basic Excel, put it on an Excel sheet and I put a number on it. And then I said, all right, I'm just going to track when we buy it. I'm going to add and when to deduct it, when we take it out. So I was in charge of the color room. Turned out I caught, we were buying about, we should have been buying about $5,000 a month of color, but we were buying about $15,000 a month of color. What that means in hair salon talk, if it's unwatched and unchecked, we were being, it was being taken. So colorists were taking the color and then doing clients at home, but using the color from the salon, which is totally outrageous and ridiculous. But, you know, that's just how, if you don't watch things in a business, you can get taken advantage of. So I started implementing all these things and it was like natural progression because a great relationship with the founder, right? The owner of the hair salon who was a hairdresser. Um, it, it was kind of a natural progression that when he said, let's start a product line, I was first in line to jump in and I literally jumped in. I met the manufacturers. I met the, you know, the, um, the, the bottle makers and learned the business from scratch. The, the thing I always kind of think about is it was the best college I could ever have asked for. It was like an MBA course in business. And if you made mistakes, the mistakes cost money. So it was like, it wasn't like fake. It was like live. And I love that. I like that pressure. I've always kind of loved pressure. So it kind of helps, helps me. So Tim, you know, I mean, fast forward with us a little bit. And the reality is Bumble and Bumble became a huge business, a big brand, and you ended yeah. up selling it to Estee Lauder. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us how that even happened. Because, you know, first you're talking about bouncing checks and, you know, figuring out how to like, Color inventory. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, but you are an operator. You were doing everything. So you're really visible and um, 
probably much more hands-on than some founders are even today. Yeah, I think starting because I was young and I had that kind of, I just, I'm lucky to do a job. It was a mentality that I think is, um, I try and when I hire people today, I kind of look for that. I'd prefer someone has that than if you're overschooled. Um, I feel like that could be a, a negative sometimes. And so I, I'm, I love people that have, that have education. I think it's fantastic. But I'm really looking for someone that's um, hungry to take on anything because they want to learn hands-on. So for me, after starting the product line, and you know that was not an easy thing. It was uh, as we started the product line, the business burnt down literally after six months. All the salons we signed up and all of our inventory literally went in a fire. So we had to restart again. And at that point, the, uh, the, the best friend of the salon owner um, had just sold his business to Britta. His name was Moss Katie. And he had sold his business to Britta. And it was, uh, sorry, he sold his business, which was called Britta, the water filter. He sold it to Clorox. And so the hairdresser, Michael, said, hey, I'm going to call my uh, best friend because I need money because my business just burned down. And if you can imagine, we had zero insurance. So this is like kind of business in the Wild West. It's like today I can't even fathom some of the stuff that that happened back then because you learn. Like, So I grew up learning, wow, fires happen. Things go wrong. Insurance is something you need. That wasn't taught to me. I learned it the hard way going through a business that burnt down. So most of the things I've learned have been through mistakes and, and kind of learning the hard way. But what you start to realize are like tools in your belt. So Bumble, we worked really hard. We ended up getting our sales up to around $100 million in salons, which is a very good small business. But it was our profit margins that were um, spectacular. And I give a lot of credit to the investor, the guy that was at Brita, because he really understood margins. I didn't even know what a margin was. When he said to me, we got to work on the margins, I was like, there's butter involved? I had no idea what he was talking about. Like it made no sense. So having been kind of uh, mentored by by the, the the kind of the guy that sold the business to Clorox Moss as a as a business mentor, but then I had Michael, who was the hairdresser and the visionary. And to me, vision and business acumen, um, people like to divide those two, and have like a you know they like to think like a visionary is a visionary and a and a business operator is an operator. And I think you can actually have the two of those. I think they can actually work well together because I think you can be taught to be a visionary. There's things you can look for. Um, so Michael really taught me a lot of that and, uh, and Moss really taught me on the business side. So fast forward, we sold Bumble and I was a, at this point, very young person. I was the youngest person to sell a brand to Estee Lauder at that point. And um, they, had, they were around 26 brands at that point. Um, today, I believe there are like almost 100 brands. So you'd have to double check it. So they've, they've grown enormously as well. But um, one of the most amazing parts was at the end of the sale, I got to actually go to Estee Lauder and learn about the corporate world because as they were taking the brand over, you know, there was a six year, uh, it was a six year earnout. So we did the deal and then it ended up in 2001. And then in 2006, the deal actually uh, finalized and you got bought out per se. Um, but over those six years, I got to really look for, well, what is a corporate, what does a corporation look for? What are the things that they want? What are, what are the margins that they look for? I understand how we do it, but what do, what do they like? And that was actually as fascinating as the Wild West startup stuff was learning how corporations think and breathe. Um, I learned that there were gaps from seeing how they look at things. I realized there's a lot of gaps that they don't see because they're really not interested in, in a startup. That's not what Estee Lauder looks for, right? They look for a startup that has found success and the risky part is gone. So to me, when I kind of saw that, I was like, wow, this is a gold mine because 
You just have to take the risk of a startup, do a good job, and then you have a buyer that's going to be forever buying from you. So, Tab, you know, what I think is so interesting here is rather than starting another brand like Bumble Mumble and then say, I want to be a founder of this brand for 15 years, 20 years, et cetera, you decided to take this concept and be an incubator for a bunch of different startups that you then thought you could sell. And what I think is so interesting is that there are so many indie brands out there and then not any of them are really getting sold at the rapid rate that you're selling brands. So I'll tell you, it's actually very interesting. So I actually, at that last part of the term, which was around 2006, I tried to pitch Estee Lauder on the concept of having an incubator and letting me run it because I knew I was getting bought out of Bumble. And I was like, hey, I've got this concept. We should make brands. I'll run it all. And we can really hyper-focus on the salon industry, but really we can, as we do well, we could expand that. And they really thought about it. And I give uh, a lot of credit to, and it's hard for a, for a company that's that buys brands that are profitable to even contemplate taking a risk on incubators. Um, and we came pretty close and there were a lot of discussions. It ended up not happening. So what I did was I actually started another brand because I didn't have enough money to do it on my own. So I had to start another brand. I invest my own money and some of the people from the Bumble journey, we all joined together. That that first investor, which was uh, Moss from the that um, that funded funded Bumble, we all kind of pulled together. The only person that didn't join at that next company was the uh was the founder of Bumble, which was the hairdresser, because we really we needed a new hairdresser and a new face. And that was a guy by the name of Orbe, who was really selected because we believed that he had the this incredible uh, lineage and, and history with supermodels and musicians and J-Lo and all that kind of that era, which were the superstars back then. And, um, you know, because Orbe now is a 10 year brand as of now, it's even a little over. So um, we, we launched in 2008. So um we started the brand, and of course, the next week, as you know, timing will go. Um, the the crisis, the two thousand eight crisis hit, and it was like, oh my god, what is going on? And we're launching a luxury brand at the most expensive prices you could have. No, any no one has ever seen shampoo for like fifty five dollars and sixty bucks for one piece. Meaning, like a shampoo and a conditioner would be a hundred dollars together. That was insane. I think at that point, the highest price stuff was Kerastase. Um, and that was really um, a brand that had come from Europe that they had brought to the U.S. and kind of repackaged for salons, which L'Oreal had done. So I, I saw a gap and our team saw a gap where we thought, OK, well, let's build a brand to go up against Kerastase that's kind of a fresh and new version of it, right? Like more high end, more sexy. And then we have this great face and there there is no Mr. Kerastase. That's just a kind of a made up name. Let's actually have a real living, breathing hairdresser. And it helps that he was a super handsome guy and super fashionable. So when you package that all together, we took off, except that first year in 2008, 2009 was a misery because the market went off a ledge and we had to raise money. And you you know how that goes. But it gave us a lot of grit. It showed, you know, it taught us, taught me personally a lot about um, not giving up because, I mean, it was it was a brutal time in 2008. You shortly thereafter sold Orbe, like you were two for two at this point. Yeah, well, it, it, that period of 2008, we ended up um, in around 2012. So four years later, we now knew we went through the worst part of 2008. And now we already knew that we had a successful business because all those customers from the Bumble and Bumble days, which that was like a 15 year journey, uh, we're taking the product and we just knew, you know, there's a point in a business where you know it's going to be successful because you're just getting the repeat and the new business and it's starting to fly. The flywheel 
starts to really turn. And um, at that point, I said to myself, all right, instead of selling Orbe, the brand, too soon, because it was too soon to sell, but I also don't want to sell the brand and then not do this uh, incubator concept, we needed kind of like a lead horse, right, for our incubator. So what I did at that point is we raised money to start this concept that I actually pitched uh, Estee Lauder on many, many, many years ago, um, which was an incubator, essentially. Now, we called it Luxury Brand Partners. Honestly, we couldn't think of a cool name. And we were like, okay, it's definitely luxury products. They're definitely brands. And it's a bunch of partners because I've always had the belief that a team is better than than one person from a from a partnership. I think it's always good to have a lot of brains together because you you know you want people poking holes and it's hard to do everything on your own. I, I always have a lot of respect for entrepreneurs that do it all on their own and go through the whole process because it kind of gets lonely and I, I love having partners to talk to. So we have great relationships with the partners we have and have learned so much from, from each other. Um, but anyway, we then had to go raise money. So we actually raised $60 million on a piece of paper. The plan literally said, we're gonna have to take 60 million, we're gonna buy a majority of Orbe, right? The company, really from ourselves, buying it. And we're going to roll that into a holding company called Luxury Ramp Partners, and we're going to buy 51%. So we, in that in that time, we did a $60 million valuation, which was a very good valuation at that point, and sold half of Orbe to ourself, kind of, with a new investor being a part of it. Um, so it was quite a clever deal when you look at the economics of it and how it worked. Um, and then we took the other $30 million from that 60. And we said, let's grow new brands with that. So brands like R&Co, Smith & Colt, B76, um, ultimately uh, Becca and um, Pulp Riot. All of these brands were brands that were created out of the funds that we had from, from that original investment. And that's where the incubator started. So it was 2012 when we started LVP with Orbe as our first brand. We then exited Orbe. Um, uh, actually, the, the first brand we exited wasn't Orbe. It was a brand called Becca that... The two, the two investors that put in the money um, own this brand together. And that's where they met each other. Actually, it was at the board. They just met each other at the board. And, and they, uh, they said, well, you have to roll in Becca into this LBP deal. And at that point, I said, absolutely not. It's the last thing I want. This is like a loser brand at that point because they were losing $4 million a year. And it was in Dwayne Reed and CVS. And I didn't think that was a great makeup strategy. Um, long and the short, we hired a phenomenal manager who's still with us today. Even though he exited with the brand, he ended up coming back because what you tend to do is work with people you really enjoy working with and that you find success with. So his name was Bob DeBaker. He ran Becca. We invested another seven to nine million dollars into this kind of dog that we didn't want and then ended up selling that three years later, turning a huge profit because we really started. We were one of the first companies to see influencers and attach an influencer to a brand. And that's what made Becca successful, there was an influencer named Jacqueline Hill who was a YouTuber for makeup. We connected her to a couple products and the brand just, I mean, it exploded. It went from losing and maybe doing 3 million in revenue to two years later doing like 80 million in revenue. It was, it was explosive. So what happened at that point is I realized, whoa, there's something to this influencer thing. <laughs> this is, this is kind of cool. And you know, it's, it's easy to look back today and say, oh, of course you need an influencer, the brand. It wasn't that obvious back then. Back then, there were people like Orbe who had a 20-year, sorry, 30 or 40 or 50-year history who you kind of made the face of a brand or an artist that had that. And now there were people popping up that had been doing it for like a couple of years and had a huge following. And that's, so 
I kind of worked through that transition era. And a lot of the brands that you see with us today, like Patrick Starr with One Size um, or Camilla Quelo with um, Ella Luz, you know, so and even Pulp Riot was a great example of a brand that we saw. It was it was hair color, but it wasn't for uh, consumers. It was hair colors for hairstylists. It was a professional product, and we took I think there was about eight hair hair colorists, and we put them all into each one had their own color, and we packaged a brand. We called it Pulp Riot. It was really fun. There was uh, we we had a partner um, from California. Um, which uh, David Thurston and we kind of all came up with this concept, put it all together. We, we, we put up the cash, we helped however we could. And David did an amazing job, built an incredible business. And that sold to L'Oreal less than two years after we started the brand. That's unheard of. I mean, that, that time frame does, I mean, Orbe was eight years, Bumble was 15 years. I get it that the time frame gets shorter now in the, what I call the new world, but two years was ridiculous. I mean, absolutely ridiculous. So. And also for, for something that someone would probably consider a pretty niche concept. You know, it's like wild hair yeah. color. It's, you know, people were saying that like, oh, all the shopping for hair color and and uh, hair products were democratized by like Sephora's and Ulta's. And right. here you're saying like the colorist matters. Yes. We're betting hard on the colors. Yeah. Real question for you, Tev. You know, I'm wondering, you the Jacqueline Hill, Becca example, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that in the same way that you're talking about it now, the way that like influencers were going to be the future. And this year you guys went really big and deep with influencers, obviously Patrick and Camilla, but you know, they're also very, these are different types of brands. They're not focused so much on the salon or obviously they're not hair, but they are um, very digitally focused. And I yes. mean, your timing is more right than ever. So could you talk a little bit about that shift and that's changed? Yeah, great question. I think, um, so remember, this is kind of a, it's funny, as you hear the story, it starts off in salons and then we inherit a makeup company because how did I go from salons to makeup? Because really, because we inherited it. If we didn't inherit that makeup brand, I would never have had the gumption to, to take a risk in makeup. But because we inherited a kind of a dog and then fixed it and sold it, we then thought, wow, we can do makeup. So sometimes you kind of have to get the, your own competence and that's when we realized the, the influencer thing with Becca, everything after that became about influencers. So it was like, all right, so how do we build brands that have influencers attached? Now, we already had at that point, we had built three or four brands that were more hair focused. One of them was nail polish, which was Smith & Colt. And, but anything new that came after that, it was all about, all right, how do we put influence? And now, so when you look at Patrick Starr today, that's from, that's a two years in the making, right? A year six months to negotiate a deal, six months to kind of get it going, and then you know a year to have the product in the store. So Sephora became the partner. So that is as far from the salon world as you can get, right? It's makeup, it's not, not hair, it's in Sephora, it's not in salons. Um, but what you realize is that there are such amazing, talented people out there. There's, like, there's tons of incredible talent. So it now is a game of not me needing to know how to do it, but really hiring incredible talent. And incubators... Uh, the ones I think that will be very successful are the ones that spend the money on people. So our payroll, where we, where we people look at us and think that we're crazy, is on how much we spend on people. Because we truly believe if you have the best people and the best talent, you can take an influencer and work the system to the influencer from a product perspective. Um, the last thing I'll tell you that I think we um, do that's kind of unique is we really look at the strategy. Orbe was strategic. Like we we saw a gap that no one had really taken. And um, Pulp Riot was strategic. And 
R&Co was very strategic as well, because at that point in time, Bumble and Bumble had gone into Sephora and we wanted to do a salon only brand. There's almost like uh, salons are like religion with brands. They don't want you to go to Sephora or Ulta. They want you to be in their salon. So when Bumble, after we had sold it, made the choice to go to Sephora, there was this gap for kind of a mid-range expense brand. And that's where R&Co was born. So if you look at R&Co and you look at Bumble, there's similarities, right? There, it's kind of punk rock movement, you know, anti-establishment, but cool. And like, uh, I'm too cool for school kind of thing. You know, that was the, that was kind of the vibe. So um, through, throughout the, the history of our business, we've just been adapting and adapting and adapting. And now I think this influ thing, influencer thing is here for at least the next decade. I think you're going to see iterations of it. I, even, po you know, watching podcasts come up and then YouTube's come up. There's been all these avenues and, and we're just one, so I believe, we're just one software idea away from something completely new. So like as an example, TikTok, TikTok from Instagram to TikTok. Um, and then what's the next thing? There'll be a new format. I think it'll be like something cool, like holograms mixed with Instagram, right? It'll be something like that. And that'll be the next medium, which will mean there's, there's a whole bunch of new business that can be built off of that. So it's a, this adapting thing is kind of our core philosophy. And then of course, being well-funded. So we brought on, uh, first time ever, we had brought an investor on into our business, which was uh, in January or February of this year. And that was a very unique thing for us because we had always self-funded everything we did. And this was a time where we actually brought in, you know, a private equity firm to actually put money into the business. So, so that's like a whole new frontier for us that we're, that we're experiencing now. Of course, COVID hit in February, so that doesn't help us, right? From a sales, I think COVID's really been difficult on, uh, you know, entire, uh, entire beauty industry. I mean, even with COVID, Tev, I hear Patrick is flying off shelves in Sephora. It is. And, you know, you have to realize if we didn't have COVID, it would probably be flying off the shelves at a four times amount, right? Because Sephora has been definitely, um, you know, not having people go into your stores is definitely an issue, right? But I, I truly believe that issue works itself out as COVID starts to dissipate and vaccines or treatments and stuff happen. That That's a problem that will get better. And um, Sephora has got amazing, and, and, and so has Ulta, at um, taking their business from and looking at the digital side. And so they've done their digital, our digital numbers are way better than what we, what we ever could have imagined, but obviously the store numbers are down. And so now it's just a matter of kind of retooling and, and, and trying to figure it out. I think that the storyline only gets better for a brand like Patrick and, um, and, and Camilla. Um, for me, it's kind of interesting. I have a very low expectation when we launch a brand. So I actually put really low numbers on what what's going to happen. And I do think there's a little bit of, you just don't know. You don't know what influencer and product is going to connect and reach the hearts and minds of their followers where they reach in their pocket and they buy. It's one thing to like and leave a comment. It's another thing to buy. And what you notice out there, I think people make the assumption that if you just put, you know, a Kardashian on anything, it will sell. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily true. Yes. I think you, it probably will sell and you have a good, a really good shot of it selling. But I mean, the Kardashians had a hair care brand that is no longer in business and all of them were pushing it. So, you know, I think there's there's always going to be this marriage of the product, the, the idea, the concept, and then a strong influencer. And when those are married correctly, I think you can have magic. Do I think Patrick is going to be the next huge beauty brand OS? Do I think that's going to be the next? Beauty? Absolutely. Because if you look at the kind of the zeitgeist of the time, where we are right now in the world with um, inclusivity being way more important than exclusivity, 
right? Just the shifts that are happening right now. I mean, we're talking on the election day today. So, I mean, this is kind of bizarre, like fits this conversation. But um, if you if you think of it from that perspective, um, Patrick is perfect, right? He's a Filipino, a gay Filipino, um, you know, minority. It's like, and and he's selling makeup. And what we're finding is we're getting, you know, in some cases, 30% of our sales are coming from men. That's an unbelievable statistic. Um, and, and now you're hearing that uh, I think Dwayne Reed or CBS are launching two male uh, makeup brands. So when you think about like how the world is turning, I think this is the perfect perfect brand and the perfect leader in Patrick for the next five to, t- five to 10 years to just create this big gargantuan meaty um, uh, makeup brand. So it's very, very exciting. And then on Camilla is a completely different story. You know, it's, it's moving into sustainability and, and clean and outdoors and nature, but, but beauty and, and connecting to yourself and, you know, doing right for everybody else and yourself as well. So it's a very, um, it's a sexy story as well that Camilla has. And um, I, I love that brand's not makeup, it's everything. It's kind of like a beauty incub- incubator itself where it's got, you know, and, and it's, it, it, it's not, you can't really call it any one thing. I mean, we were talking the other day about making water, water that has vitamins in it because we think there's a gap there. So, you know, it's, it's, that's really fun brand. I love brands that aren't pigeonholed either. And that one definitely has quite a lot of um, girth to it. So, so those are the two, but we do have new stuff we're working on because we're always working on new stuff. And, and I think when we were talking the last time we talked about how many um, brands a year do you try and do? And for, for us, our goal was kind of one to two brands a year. And we hit the two brands for 2020. Um, I don't think COVID slowed us down a little bit. So I don't think we're going to launch two brands in 2021. Um, but we're reassessing because it's also changed the market a little bit. So there's opportunities that we're looking for right now. Um, you know, No one would have thought that hand cleaners would have been <laughs> selling so well. So, you know, and that's just an example, but it shows that there are opportunities. I'm not saying we're going to do hand cleaners, um, but I'm just saying it. things like that appear through through pandemics that maybe you haven't thought of before. And then they create cracks and those cracks can sometimes be filled. So that's how we look at it. Last question for you, Tab. You know, I think what's interesting is that there are other brand incubators obviously out there in the market that are trying to be their own, you know, Procter & Gamble or Estee Lauder or Unilever. Like they want to be a CPG company in their own right. And arguably you could too, but you seem to be much more interested in revving things up and then selling. Could you talk a little bit about if that is the long-term strategy for LBP? Yeah, it's a phenomenal question. I, there's, I, I actually think there's two kinds of mindsets. There are, let's build uh, an Estee Lauder or a L'Oreal. Um, good luck. That is not an easy thing to do. Um, I have so much respect for conglomerates that I'm petrified of them in one sense because I don't want to compete with them. How are you going to compete with these multi, multi, multi billion dollar? But you so, are competing with them. So I kind of think of it a little differently, and you're going to laugh. I And I, if they ever listen to this podcast, they'd probably be like, this guy's psycho. But I kind of look at it like I'm actually an arm of them. I'm their new product division. And all I do, all our company, all LBP does, is we create products that we kind of line it up for them to make an easy acquisition. And we know the things they're looking for. They want to have like a, as a Patrick Star, as an example, it has to be a sign of the times and kind of connect with where we are as a, as a mindset. It has to be profitable. So it's going to, you know, I need it for a couple of years. I got to build profitability into it. And it has to be well executed. And you have to have trademarks around the world. And you have to have licenses. And you have to do things properly. So when they buy it, it's seamless. 
if you can erase the roadblocks and put it to them on a platter, you're going to get a lot of buyers. I don't ever know which one is going to be the buyer. Like Cal bought uh, Orbe, L'Oreal uh, bought Pulp Riot, Estee Lauder bought Becca, you know, and Bumble. I, it, you never know who's going to buy it. But I think if you run a great business and you're you're thinking of what do they want and how do they grow, I'm actually their best partner. And I love this business because it's forever. We can just keep building stuff because they grow by acquisition. And that's their model, which is not my model. The question always comes up, and it's funny you dialed into it. Can you then just keep building your own and keep them and turn into one of, you know, turn into a conglomerate? I, it's not the way I, I'm personally wired. I think, would LVP ever do that? They might, but then they, I wouldn't be the right person for it because I love the excitement of the brand and the build, and then I love the sell as well. It's just how I'm entrepreneurially kind of driven. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not the person to kind of keep a brand for 20 years and just keep growing it. I love the excitement of the new stuff. So, so I'm actually the perfect partner for them because I don't want to be them and they certainly don't want to be, be us, right? They have no interest in risk of startups. That's not what they do. So one day maybe they'll buy us. That would be, you know, if they are listening, always for sale because I'm an <laughs> entrepreneur. So, you know, we're here. <laughs> And speaking for things for sale, are there any other brands that you would like to sell off sooner rather than later? You know, it's funny. The, the way I think about it is every brand is for sale. In, in what I do, every brand's for sale. It's just I never actually think about selling it. That's the interesting part. I think about operating it, crushing it, getting the sales to be really good, and then someone will come along by. So interestingly enough, I was talking to one of the presidents the other day. We've never actually run a process to sell a brand. We've always been um, like tapped approach. on the shoulder approach where they're like, we want to buy your brand. Um, so will there be a brand that we run a process for? I'm sure, because as we're getting bigger, you know, you know I'm not, I, I can't pigeonhole to that. But it's just interesting. When you look back, we've never tried to sell a brand. The brand has always naturally sold itself. I kind of like that model. It's a little more fluid and um, I don't know, destiny driven, if you will. But but if there was something that came along that I thought was like, oh, this conglomerate should have this, we would we would try that method. Tev, this has been so much fun. I mean, I could talk to you like- I know, I feel like we could talk for like six hours, but I mean, 25, that's fine. I'll I'll fit to the restriction. That's totally fine. (laughs) We'll have fun again. Thank you so much, Tev, for being here. It was so great having you. Thank you, Priya. Thanks for tuning into the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you're listening. See you next week.